Our scripture references for today are on the outline that's in your bulletin. So if you want to go ahead and turn to those and hold your place there, we'll look at them here in a few minutes. I enjoy stories about reluctant people who become uh, heroes, who do something heroic. Uh, I enjoy stories about people who are unqualified for a task, yet they rise to the challenge and they achieve something uh, that's great. Uh, I enjoy stories about people, whether it's teams or uh, businesses that are outmanned, under-resourced, and yet find a way against the odds uh, to do something really special. And I'm guessing that most of you here would be like me, and you enjoy those kind of stories as well. Many of the movies that we find ourselves loving so much have these types of themes uh, in them. You know, Frodo Baggins was reluctant uh, to follow in the steps of the footsteps of Bilbo and have an adventure. And having seen the adventure over the last couple of weeks, I understand why he was hesitant uh, to have an adventure. And as anybody, as anybody would assess um, Frodo, uh, he was thoroughly unqualified to, to be selected as the one who would have this awesome responsibility to destroy the one ring. He was laughably outmanned. He was just ridiculously under-resourced. Rocky Balboa. He was eager, but he did not have the physical tools to, to be a world champion. And yet, against all odds, he becomes a champion. And now, Sylvester Stallone, against all odds, <laughs> is trying to be an action hero. You're 70 years old, Sly. Stop! Bullet in the head. How, how long did he work on that title for that movie? Bullet in the head. Oh, help us. Not long enough. That's right. Now, okay. Had no intent to talk about this, but Eastwood pulls off the tough guy. Sly needs to give it up. Sorry. Okay. Just, just my opinion. All right. Let's go on. Uh, another movie that, that I love that I'll bet many of you do as well. Schools are desegregated in Virginia. Uh, black and white students are combined into one high school, T.C. Williams High School. The black football coach is chosen uh, to, to be the head coach over the white football coach. The, the black players and white players must learn to work together. The coaches must learn to work together. And eventually, even though the community is almost torn apart, the players do come together. The coaches do come together. Many of the people in the community finally come together, and the team has a year to remember. Remember the Titans. If you've never seen that, one of the best movies you could ever uh, watch. These kind of themes have played out uh, throughout history. You know, the, the history of our own nation uh, has this at work. Much of the Revolutionary War is an illustration of reluctant, outmanned, and under-resourced leaders uh, and, and armies going against the odds, beating the odds, and eventually winning uh, our freedom. Reluctant heroes, inexperienced or unqualified people rising to a challenge, outmanned 
under-resourced folks securing a victory. We love these kinds of stories. But when it comes to our own lives, while we often celebrate those stories, when it comes to our own lives, we often shrink back from living out those kind of stories. We allow our inexperience to keep us uh, from pursuing some dream we have. We receive an opportunity, and the opportunity is intimidating. We, we sense that maybe it's just a little bit too big for us. We don't feel qualified, and so we turn it down. Of course, making an honest assessment of ourselves is a good idea. There is legitimate tension that exists between rightly evaluating, honestly evaluating our, our capabilities, and, and even if it requires us to stretch ourselves, that's, that's a good thing. So, so we need to honestly evaluate those things. But far too often, we, we allow fear to keep us from doing something that we really ought to do to accept limitations that we really should not uh, accept because we feel inferior, we feel inexperienced, we feel inadequate. For a Christian, this inability to take risk, an inability to overcome these, uh, these feelings that we have, allowing reluctance, the, 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 the knowledge, factually often, that we aren't qualified, the, the reality that we are under-resourced to cause us to shrink back from opportunities. This be, can become a real problem for Christians. And here's why. Because God routinely chooses to give us assignments that stretch us, that, that require us uh, to have a willingness to obey Him even though we don't feel up to doing what it seems as though He's asking us to do. God often assigns his people tasks that are beyond their ability, that require them to overcome their initial reluctance, that require them to obey him in spite of their inexperience, that require them to say yes uh, to his assignment, even though they feel they don't have the resources to do what he's called them to do. As we continue this series on taking God-inspired risks, today we come to the book of Judges and the story of a man named Gideon. Uh, Gideon is commended in Hebrews chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame that we have used as a launching uh, pad for this uh, series. And his story is found in the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, your outline shows the text, as I mentioned, that we're going to read here in a couple of minutes from the book of Judges. Uh, the, the events that we're going to talk about today are found in Judges 6 and 7. And while we're not going to read all of those, um, uh, I would suggest that this week sometime you read uh, Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7. Today we're just going to look at a few uh, selected texts. But we're going to see a number of things in the story of Gideon that I think are helpful to us in learning to take God-inspired risk, including this. We're going to find that God is often going to give us an assignment that is beyond our capabilities in order to help us come to the place where we understand that success depends on His capabilities depends on his resources, it does not depend on our capabilities 
or our resources. So let's look at Judges 6, 11 through 16. Uh, these verses give us the account of God's call to Gideon, uh, giving him a specific assignment, and then what Gideon's uh, response was uh, to that call. Here's what we read. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. Uh, aren't you glad you don't have to read this? Uh, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Listen to this. But now the Lord has abandoned us. And put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. So we see in these verses that God is calling Gideon to lead his people, and not just to, uh, to lead his people, but God is calling Gideon, in the words of God, to save his people from the Midianites. Uh, a little background to what's going on here is helpful to us, as God's people always have to this very day. The children of Israel and the book of Judges were a very unreliable group of followers, Extremely unreliable. God would bless them. They would serve him for a period of time. But then their affections again and again and again would be turned away from God. They, they would serve other gods. They would turn away from God's moral law. They basically would do what was right in their own eyes. In fact, the whole book of Judges deals with the fact that God's people are in a state where everybody does what is right in their own eye. Sound familiar? Very similar to the day uh, that we are uh, living in. So this is the state of affairs for God's people in the book of Judges. They have turned away from him. And, and when they would turn away from him and do what was right in their own eyes, God, in loving discipline, would remove his hand of blessing from them in an attempt to get them to turn back to him. The Midianites that are referenced in our text were people that God used as instruments of his loving discipline with the children of Israel. They were a nomadic people. And what they did is they would conduct raids on Israel's crops. They would strip its land bare and they would steal its livestock. So, so here's how it would uh, typically happen. Uh, the Israelites would plant, the Israelites would tend, and then when it was time to harvest, it was also time for the annual visit of the Midianites. And they would come in, and they would invade, and they would plunder. The, the Midianites' approach to uh, getting the resources they need was this. Israel plants, Israel tends, we harvest. That, that was the deal. And at the time of our text, this had been happening 
for seven years. Seven straight years. Israel would do the work. Midian would reap the harvest. So this is the context of God's call to Gideon. And what is God's assignment? It's quite an assignment. It's found in verse 14. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Wow. That's an adventure. That's a big assignment. God is telling Gideon, and by the way, you have to catch this. Gideon, as God is telling him this, is hiding in a wine press to thresh wheat because he doesn't want to be found by Midian who is about to come and try to take all of his stuff. He's hiding when God says this. God's calling him to be the savior of Israel while he's hiding, scared. God's telling him, you're not going to hide anymore. But instead of hiding, you're actually going to confront and defeat the people that have tormented you and your people for so long. And within this call is a a call to the leadership of the people of Israel, but it's also a call that goes beyond that because, again, it's the words of the Lord that says Gideon is called to save Israel, called to lead, called to save from a fearsome enemy that they had been powerless against year after year after year. This is a risky assignment that God has given Gideon. You cannot accept an assignment like this if you're not willing to accept risk. The the assignment that God has here for Gideon is an all-in type of assignment. You can't, you, you can't like just you know, dip your toe in. You've got to be all in. What what Gideon is being called by God to do is the kind of thing where you are either successful or you die. You accomplish the task or life is over. And Gideon isn't exactly eager to take the assignment. Uh, He's shown in verses 11 through 16 to be very reluctant And when it comes to the kind of criteria you would think would be applied to selecting a leader who would save people, he is shown to be unqualified. The interaction between Gideon and the Lord is very interesting. Uh, The angel of the Lord greets Gideon this way, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. To which he responds, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Where are his wonders? No, he has abandoned us. You notice the Lord doesn't even directly answer that. He just goes on and says, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? Okay, two times now. Gideon has been encouraged and he responds, But Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest and I am the least in my family. The Lord answers, I will be with you. You will strike down all the Midianites together. So our hero, today's hero, is reluctant. How can I save Israel? He is unqualified. He's from the weakest clan. And he is the least in his family. 
And he's even got an objection. He's even got a bone to pick with the Lord. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And I imagine the angel of the Lord going, sin? Sin? No. The text does not say he said that. (laughs) Thinking he might have been thinking that. Why has all this happened to us? If the Lord is with us, why are we in the condition we're in? Where are his wonders? No, 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 no. God has abandoned us. This is not a likely man to be a savior of his people. But then if you're familiar with the story, if not, you should, should read through it this week. But he does move toward acceptance of this call on his life. Time doesn't allow us to go into all the details of the story, but in verses 17 through 24, you can read about how he made an offering to the Lord. The offering was uh, consumed by fire, uh, which provided some confirmation to Gideon of what he was being called to do. So Gideon, reluctant and unqualified, has been given the assignment of saving Israel from Midian. But before he gets to go out and save Israel from Midian, God requires a first act of obedience from Gideon. It's kind of like the the, the warm-up assignment, the first act of obedience. In verses 25 through 32, let us know that Gideon's own father, Joash, had erected an altar to the false god, uh, Baal. Now, I just like to stop here and say... Uh, depending on where you grew up and the church tradition you grew up in, you could have heard this name pronounced Baal. You could have heard it pronounced Baal. I think the the real technical uh, meaning of it uh, or uh, pronunciation is something along the lines of uh, Baal. Um, So, lest you sit there and fret over a wrong pronunciation, I am aware that it's said in different ways. But we for today will go with Baal. Okay. I thought that was funny. You, you did not. Uh, and he had also erected uh, an Asherah pole. And it appears that it wasn't just for his own worship, but it appears that, that this uh, altar and, and this Asherah had some significance for the, the men of the town. One source I read this week said that Joash was likely uh, basically a priest of, of Baal. Uh, And and an Asherah pole, if you don't know about these, was a symbol of the goddess Asherah who was often worshipped by the Jewish people, by the people of Israel, with lewd acts. And Asherah was closely associated with Baal. You think we live in in a time of great apostasy in the church. God's people have always been an unfaithful people. I mean, think of the people of God worshiping a false god with lewdness as worship. This was a bad time. God's people had strayed very far. And so God instructs Gideon to tear down the altar and to tear down the pole and to build. This is so interesting what God tells him to do. He is then to build an altar to the true God over top of the place the altar to Baal had been. And then he's to use the wood from the Asherah pole as the, the fuel to to set a fire to burn the offering to the true God. Gideon obeys. He he tears this down at night, and the men of town discover it, and they're furious, and they want to kill him. 
And Joash either was never a firm believer in Baal, maybe he just was a a man who went along with the community, went along with the times, either that or else he now saw the futility of worshiping Baal. And so he argues on behalf of his son that if Baal is really a god, he probably should have been able to defend himself against Gideon. And since he wasn't able to defend himself against Gideon, then we should just let this matter uh, go. Now, we can't unpack all of this today, but I want to draw out just a couple of quick things uh, regarding this first obedience with, uh, with uh, Gideon. First, God is saying to Gideon, if you're going to do what I have called you to do, you cannot have any other gods before me. And I'm not going to talk about this as much later as right now I'm thinking I probably should have, but... But here's a good point for us to take from this message today. If we are going to do what God has called us to do, that that big assignment that we sense the Lord has given us, we need to tear down the false gods that we are serving. You cannot have any other gods before me. You've got to tear down the idols in your life. And he's saying to Gideon, you have to tear them down, even if it means you have to tear down idols that your daddy built. Idols that your family built. How often family idolatry keeps us from doing what God has called us to do. We worship a denomination and so we stay in it even though it's at this point displeasing to God. We have some some weakness that runs through our family and we refuse to tear it down. We just keep repeating the pattern. David Jackman writes, Baal has to be broken down before Midian can be overcome. You will not defeat Midian before you smash Baal. When God shows us a step, we must take it. So God required this first act of obedience from Gideon. And this first act, it also required Gideon to embrace risk. The men of the town were not happy. They wanted to kill him and he knew going in. That was going to be their response. He had, he had no illusions that they would just take that lying down. He had to embrace risk. He had to trust God with the consequences in this first act of obedience. It was training ground for what God was going to do with him next. You know, you may feel called to some specific ministry that has not happened for you yet. Some specific assignment that you know God uh, has given you. But there is something right in front of you that you're not doing that you know God is requiring. Obey Him in that. Right now, it is training ground for what God wants to do later in your life. So God has given Gideon the assignment to save Israel from Midian. Gideon started out reluctant and unqualified, but he rose to the occasion, was obedient to the training ground assignment that God gave him, and now God is going to use him to defeat the Midianites. Again, we can't cover all of this story, but look with me at Judges 7, 1 through 8, and here's where we're going to focus most of the rest of our time. Here's what it says. Early in the morning, Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. 
The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. All those great jokes I tell, you don't laugh at, and you laugh at that. (laughs) 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So... Gideon has accepted his assignment, even though he was initially uh, reluctant and uh, felt unqualified, and in many ways was unqualified. He was obedient to tear down the altar to Baal, and now Gideon has gathered 32,000 men to help him fight against the Midianites. God tells him 32,000 is too many. And, And so he says, send those who are fearful home. And 22,000 men walk away. Can I tell you what I'm amazed by? I'm amazed that 10,000 stayed. More than that 22,000 left. The Lord tells Gideon 10,000 is still too many. So he's to take them into the water. And whoever gets down on their knees and basically just buries their face in the water. Tell them to go home. But those who stoop down, scoop the water to their hands, keep them. I'm sure from Gideon's perspective, he was very distraught that 9,700 lapped the water like a dog, which leaves Gideon with only 300 men. Now, why did God have Gideon conduct this test? What is it about this? Um, You you know, people have suggested different things. You know, they've said that the people who would scoop the water were more alert. And so that's why God... I I don't think it really mattered if they were alert or not with the strategy that is going to come into play here. Here's what I think. I think God knew that it would be asking too much of anybody to hang out with people who drink water like a dog. That's, that's, that's what I think it was. He knew that Gideon would say, God, I'm willing to do a lot of stuff, but I can't hang out with people who drink water like a dog. That's just so uncouth that uh, I, I, can't, I can't be around that. So that's, that's my theory. Um, I'm not writing any commentaries on it, but that's, that's what I think. Uh, so... So here's the deal. God thought the right size army for Gideon was 300. 32,000 was too many. 300 was just right. Which brings us to an interesting question. 
How large was the Midianite army? I mean, if the Midianite army is 200 men, 300 is great. I think you know where this is going. The Midianite army was 135,000 men. I mean, at 32,000, you had no chance. And now, at 300, you are outnumbered 450 to 1. Outmanned. Under-resourced. Can we agree that you don't get any more outmanned than that? I mean, you do not get any more under-resourced than that. Gideon's reluctant, he's in many ways unqualified, and now he is the leader of a laughably under-resourced army. And here's something you have to understand about this story. You, you miss the story, you, you miss the point of this if you don't get this. It was entirely intentional on God's part to send Gideon against the Midianites ridiculously outmanned. This is the way God wanted it. It was God's design. God purposely sets it up this way. Purposely. Purposely. God did this. Why? Verse 2 tells us why. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hand. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. You've got to send 31,700 men home. Because if you have any more than that, you're not going to give me credit for this. Do you realize that human beings, you and I, have an incredible capacity for taking credit for things that God does? We're very bad at this. Stuff we really had nothing to do with. God reduced Gideon's army to this ridiculous level so that all of Israel would know that it was not Gideon who delivered them, but God who delivered them. And Gideon, outnumbered 450 to 1, by faith, continues to be obedient to God and lead Israel against Midian. Now, Gideon offered obedience to God in spite of all of these different things that we've talked about here today. In spite of his own reluctance, in spite of his own inexperience, in spite of his lack of credentials, in spite of being outnumbered 450 to 1, he did it by faith. By faith in the God who had called him to this assignment. You know, God promised him in chapter 6, verse 16, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites. And then in chapter 6, verse 34, God, uh, that tells us that Gideon began to recruit men to this endeavor. When he did that, it says that, quote, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. So God promised to be with him. God's spirit came up on him. So even though in the natural he felt unqualified and his army was horribly outnumbered, he had the promise of God. He had the spirit of God. 
and that enabled him to believe that the assignment could be fulfilled even though in the natural it did not make sense to believe it. Where did we start out with this series? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. He had the promise and the presence of God. And so by faith in that God, he overcame his reluctance and he was willing to fight with an outmanned army. God is so gracious to us. He always helps us along in our walk of faith. And God did so with Gideon. God told Gideon, if you are still afraid. So Gideon's there. I mean, he's there. He's, he's done what God's told him to this point. He's there. But God knows he's still afraid. And so God says, if you're still afraid, then here's what you can do. I'm going to give you an offer. You can go down, sneak down, and listen in on the conversations that are happening in the Midianite camp. And so Gideon, still being afraid, said, yes, I would like to take you up on that deal. He grabs his servant and he goes, sneaks down, and he listens outside the tent uh, of uh, a couple of the Midianites. And uh, here's what he overheard. He overheard two friends sharing. One of them was telling a dream to the other one. And then after that dream was told, the friend responded this way, interpreted it this way in verse 14 of uh, chapter 7. This can be nothing other than, so what you've told me in this dream, it can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the whole camp into his hands. Now, think with me about what's happening here. Okay? The Midianites have not been attacked. A fearful leader of the opposition is cowering outside a tent, hoping not to be discovered as he's listening. The Midianites have a 450 to 1 advantage. And yet before the people of God have done anything... People in the Midianite camp have already become convinced that they have lost to Gideon. It's amazing. It's God. And so with this news, Gideon goes back. His his faith is inspired. And he enacts the following plan. These 300 men will form three companies. Each man is given, if you don't know the story, you're going to love this. Each man is given a trumpet, an empty jar, and a torch. Spear? Do we have spears here? Nope, no spears. What about a javelin? Nope, no javelin. What about one of those pointy things that uh, you kill zombies with? What about that? (laughs) They didn't have any of those either. Nope. Trumpet, jar, torch. So here's the plan. They come to the edge of the camp. They uh, encircle the camp. The men blow the trumpets. They smash the jars. They hold the torches in their left hands. The the Bible actually says the left hand. I'm sure there's some deep meaning in there. Uh, They shout this. They're supposed to shout this. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. No swords, but they shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And then they blow the trumpets some more. There it is, the plan. 
That is the strategy. And here's the result. Verse 21. All the Midianites ran. I love this. Crying out as they fled. Think of how funny that is. (laughs) Crying out in fear. The only thing the enemy has is torches and trumpets. It's a great story. So the story goes on from there, but, but that's really all we need to know for today. 300 men holding torches, blowing trumpets, and shouting loud. And with that, Israel defeats an army of 135,000 men. Yes, that's, yes, good. Chapter 7, verse 22, tells us how this victory came about. Here's what it says. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The Lord caused it. How do 300 defeat 135,000? The Lord caused. That's how. How does blowing trumpets defeat an army that has real weapons? The Lord caused. How does a reluctant and unqualified leader accept such such an aggressive, such an audacious assignment? The Lord caused. How is victory gained? How is success achieved even when under-resourced, outmanned, laughably so? The Lord caused. That's how it happened. And that's how it happens today. In 2013, God still does this. He still says, I'm purposely going to put you in a position where you can't do it. It makes no earthly sense for you to even consider doing it. But then... I'm going to cause it to happen. I'm going to do it. I just need you to cooperate with me. There are a number of things that we learn from this story of Gideon. There are four that I want to mention here as we wrap up for today. First of all, we learn from Gideon that God often chooses the reluctant, the inexperienced, and the unqualified to hand really plumb assignments to, to hand really important assignments to. Now, I want to be clear about something. It is not as if God will not work with the eager, the experienced, and the qualified. He can and he does. But there is consistent evidence throughout Scripture of God picking unlikely candidates for important assignments. We've already seen it in this series. Moses uh, was uh, reluctant. Abraham, you know, this is something I really didn't talk about when we uh, dealt with Abraham, but you realize that Abraham was a pagan. When God plucked him out of a sea of humanity and said, you are going to be the, the man through whom I'm going to make a great nation that's going to bless and save the entire world. He was a pagan when God put that call on his life. 
I've seen this play out in a number of cases with people that I personally know or people that I have known of. We, we are not looking for a template here as if God can only use one kind of person. But here's what I do think is important for many of us in this room to take away from this message today. And that is that if you are reluctant to do something that God is calling you to do, you sense that he's calling you to do it. Perhaps because you feel inexperienced, you are inexperienced, perhaps because you feel unqualified, perhaps because you feel under-resourced, you need to know that God is not limited by any of that in your life. You, you may feel called to begin to share the gospel uh, with a co-worker. You, you, you may th- say to yourself, you know, I'm just afraid to do that. I I I don't think I know enough. I I don't think I understand the Bible enough. I get confused when Stan talks about apologetics in the walking with Jesus class. I get so confused. By all means, study. But, But don't let your perception of your inadequacy stop you from doing what God is nudging you to do. You, you may be entirely inadequate, but God is not, and he's able to do what he's called you to do. And, you know, my personal experience and hearing the experience of others, most of the time sharing the gospel has very little to do with arguing with people about anything. It has more to do with telling about what Jesus has done in your own life. And you can do that. Take a chance. Be obedient. And just know that as God assured Gideon, he assures each of us here today, I will be with you. You're not doing this on your own. You're doing it in my power. We learn from Gideon that God provides sufficient evidence to inspire faith, but always allows sufficient uncertainty to stretch faith. The Lord answered Gideon's request of confirmation We didn't go into this story, but the story of the fleece, you know, wet fleece, dry ground, dry fleece, wet ground, all that thing. Confirmation of what God had called him to do. But then he says, send 31,700 men home. He was ready. He, He knew God had been with him. God had been with him when he had tore down the altar to Baal. God had given him this confirmation of the, of the whole fleece thing. He was ready. God knew he was still nervous. So he allowed him to hear the enemy's conversation. But even once he heard the enemy's conversation, knowing that the enemy was feeling defeated, faith was still required. He still had to actually walk out with the army. Outmanned 451. He had to actually surround the camp. They had to actually break the jars and hold the torches and blow the trumpets. And while God had provided a lot of assurance, Gideon did not know the outcome like he could only know the outcome once they broke the jars and blew the trumpets. He knew by faith, but he still had to blow the trumpets, still had to smash the jars, still had to shout loud before he would see with his eyes what God had promised him. And it's the same with us. God will give us enough evidence to inspire our faith, but he's not going to give us enough evidence that we don't have to exercise faith. He's not going to do that. When Michelle and I felt a call to plant this church, God did a lot to inspire faith in us. 
John Moriarty supported the idea of planting this church. For those of you who don't know, John Moriarty was our sending pastor 12 miles down the road in Pickerington. A lot of churches don't send plants 12 miles down the road. They're too, too concerned with the impact that's going to have on their own church to send a plant 12 miles down the road. John Moriarty supported the idea at great cost to Eastside Vineyard Church. A good group of leaders quickly committed to the plant. Around 60 people, most of them from Eastside Vineyard and a few others committed to be a part of the plant. We started with enough people and resources to secure an office, to secure a place to hold worship services, to buy the supplies we needed. But we had no promise the church was going to grow. We thought it would. We hoped it would. We prayed it would. That's why we were coming. But we had no promise of that, no guarantee of that. And we did not have, we, we had this one major problem. We did not have the resources to support a pastor. As hard as I tried, and I tried, I was going to be bivocational. As hard as I tried, I could not find a job. I took a test to become a TSA agent and flunked. (laughs) At least I assume I flunked. I never heard back. I at least wasn't high on the list. And you've seen the TSA agents, right? I mean, okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) If you're a TSA agent, I'm entirely joking. Um, It was not a proud moment, though. I couldn't find a job. Here's what I've discovered. Once pastor is on your resume... (laughs) You better be a pastor the rest of your life because you're not doing much else. It it's, uh, just seems to be the reality. Um, and here's the thing. We had boys who were five and one. They like to eat. Those kids like to eat. And so finally, our elders said, well, I want you to see how it goes. Okay. A lot to inspire faith, but I, I had all the things you guys have, mortgage, a couple of cars, you know, let's just see how it goes. We had no other choice, couldn't find a job, so we decided to see how it goes, and here's how it's gone. From day one, God has allowed Vineyard Christian Church to always have enough money to pay our bills including allowing me to be a full-time pastor from the very first day, which, which almost never happens with church plants. And within just a few short months, God had blessed us with so much financial resources that we were able to, in year one, begin saving and thinking towards securing our own facility without ever one time saying, we can't do this ministry thing if we want to get a building someday. We didn't have to make that choice. Enough to inspire faith, but not enough to to exempt you from needing to exercise faith. God works like this. He works like this. 
And, and what I would appeal to all of you is to accept that this is how God works. To accept that this is part of saying yes to his assignments. He will give you evidence that's going to point you to, to, to a conclusion that says, yes, I think this can happen. But he's never going to uh, give you so much certainty that you're not going to have to step out in faith. There is never a risk-free, outcome-guaranteed assignment from God. At least not that I've ever seen. We always need faith. We always have to be willing to take a chance and trust God. I'm hurrying. The third thing, we learn that God delights in showing his power by working through our weakness. Remember, it was intentional that God said 32,000 is too many. Go down to 300. That's the right number to face the 135,000. He did it this way on purpose in order that Israel could not boast that her own strength had saved her. And you see this over and over again in the scripture. David faced Goliath, the fearsome champion of the Philistines. He approached Goliath with what? You know, most of you know the story, a sling and a few smooth stones. But David really knew that he was not facing Goliath with a sling and a few smooth stones. I love what David said as he came out to face Goliath right before Goliath dies. He says this, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you with a sling and five smooth stones. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Compared to Goliath, David was weak, but God delights in giving a young man with a sling, victory over a giant who is a fearsome warrior. In John fifteen five, Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's precisely in our weakness that God demonstrates his power. Are you feeling weak against some assignment God has given you? If you are, here's my good news for you today. You are right where God wants you to be. It is in your weakness that he shows his strength. And finally, we learn that faith is obedient in spite of. It's obedient in spite of. Gideon, obedient in spite of reluctance, inexperience, outnumbered. You know, we can always find some reason why we can't do what God has called us to do. I can't tell my friend the gospel because I don't know the Bible well enough. I can't be a godly example at work because the environment's too toxic. I can't be the parent I want to be to my children because my spouse and I don't see eye to eye. I can't serve in the teen ministry because kids don't think I'm cool. They didn't think I was cool when I was a teenager, and they certainly don't think I'm cool now. <laughs> I can't teach a Sunday school class because I don't have enough patience. I can't plant a church because I'm too young and inexperienced. I can't be a missionary because I don't see how I could possibly raise financial support. I can't pray with a stranger because they'll think I'm weird. I can't go and pray with someone and tell them that I think God gave me a message for them because that just makes me too uncomfortable. There are all these things that God calls us to do, a task, uh, 
you know, tasks that are fairly small, like one thing, like go do this one thing, and then tasks that are huge. The faith that Gideon practiced, the faith that we need to practice, the faith that pleases God is obedient in spite of whatever. And so here's how we need to, to, to start handling this, start approaching this. We need to say things like this. It is true. I don't know the Bible well enough. But God's telling me to share the gospel. And so I'm going to share it. Here I go. I know I'm not cool. I, I'm saying that for whoever of you, you know, that would apply to. Uh, I, I know I'm not cool. But I think that God wants me to work in teen ministry. And so I'm going to work in teen ministry. I know I'm young and inexperienced. But I can't deny that God keeps nudging me toward this idea that I'm supposed to be a pastor and plant a church. So, okay, God, in spite of my fears, I'll say yes. Faith is obedient in spite of inadequacy, obedient in spite of insufficient resources, Obedient even when the task is too big. Faith is obedient in spite of everything that tries to frustrate the will of God in our lives. This is the faith that Gideon practiced. The faith that pleases God. The faith that all of us need to practice. I do and you do. And why? Because this is the kind of faith that brings glory to God. So what is it that you sense God has been asking of you that you've been unwilling to do because you felt unqualified or under-resourced? Today, right now in this place, I appeal to you to say yes to Jesus. Because just like he did with Gideon, he wants very much to accomplish his purposes through your inadequacy so that his name is glorified. Don't you want to do that? Don't you want to be involved in seeing his name glorified through you? Why don't you stand?